You, okay, you want to know how tired I am today? This morning I get up. I think, how tired are you? I'm like a comedy club with a bunch of hecklers. Anyway, uh, I, I got up this morning and I try and do like everything that I can in the shower, like shave and I brush my teeth and stuff. So I'm in the shower this morning getting ready and I grab my toothbrush and I'm like, what? Tooth, yeah, that's, that, that's how this morning is going to go, by the way. I'm really tired and no comedy. That's it. We're just going to go yell at you the whole time. That, that's all you get. Uh, if you are interested in playing softball, this is the last Sunday to sign up for one of our softball teams. You can do that right in the back at the Welcome Center. Don't forget to do that. Um, sometimes uh, this service and the next service, they get really crowded. Not if you ever noticed, they're really cr- So we have an 815. It's there for you if you'd like to go to it. It's got plenty of seats. <laughs> I'm not even awake for it. I'm like... That's right, I, I, I speak through my toothbrush in that service. Uh, and then last week, someone was asking me some questions about our building status and, and where we're at. Uh, really? We don't know. All right, so there you go. There's our status update. Our, the, this building that we're, that we're in, the, the, the whole property on this corner is actually in foreclosure. Uh, the, the guy that, that we rent from, and st- so there's a whole bunch of stuff going on with that. Basically, it went into escrow like two months ago, and it was like a six-month escrow, and it fell out of escrow. So it's not an escrow anymore. So we're in the same boat we have been for the last three years. Woohoo! It's way to go us. Uh, we are looking at other places in town, and we've been doing stuff like that. So, so don't worry. We, we are looking, but that's just that's about all I got for an update about where we are right now. So kind of like this corner. Every once in a while, you know, you get the... It keeps it real. Just real. There we go. Why don't you guys stand with me? Reading to God's Word. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, and it says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would help us to be a people who understand that, that we are to have repentance in regard to how you call us to, so that it leads to true life, and not shame and guilt and regret and death, but true life that you would make as a people who remember you and what you have done. Amen. Have a seat. So we are in the book of Genesis, chapter 8. You can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8 if you want. This is week 16, so we're kind of like half and half. Don't worry, it's not going to be like week 100, chapter 50. It's going to be like week 75, chapter 50. <laughs> be close, but, but not all the way there. Uh, so far, this is what has happened. Genesis 1, God creates everything. That includes you and I. Uh, if you missed any of this, you can go back and get all the previous messages on our website, ourelement.org. They're free. Get what you pay for. All right, uh, so God creates everything, including us, chapter 1. Chapter 2, he places us in this garden. We have, we have perfect peace, perfect shalom, perfect rest. Everything is good the way God intended it for, uh, for it to be. And God says, don't disobey me. That's the one thing. Don't disobey me. Chapter 3, what do we do? Disobey, that's right, because we're dumb. We're like sheep that have all gone astray. Bah, you and me. All right, Genesis 4 through 6. Human sin begins to proliferate upon the planet. 1,600 years, God then judges mankind. He brings about a flood. He takes a guy named Noah. He shows Noah's, Noah grace. Noah builds a big boat. God saves Noah and his family. At this point in chapter 8, they have been on the wind and the waves for months. No rudder, no engine, no sails. They're just kind of 
out there. If you've ever felt like you were drifting in your life, felt alone, maybe like God's forgotten about you, well, this is kind of relatable because that's probably what Noah felt like towards the end of him hanging out there on the water. Chapter 8, verse 1 brings about a major turning point in the scriptures. Chapter 8, verse 1 starts like this. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Now, the Hebrew word for remember is the word zakar. Everybody say zakar. Zakar. I'll have some of that with cheese. All right. Last week, I ended telling you that, that that word actually has the connotations in it that when God remembers his people, he remembers his covenant that he made with people. It's not that he forgot about Noah floating out there. It's that God intended to act on behalf of Noah. Now, in terms of people remembering, this word zakar is used in terms of people all throughout the scriptures. It means such a deep thing to the Hebrew culture at this time that, that uh, Genesis was written that it's almost hard for us to relate it because we didn't grow up in the middle of it. Uh, really, Zakar, in a human perspective, has the connotation that when you, remembering, when you remember something, it changes how you live, how you act, how you treat others around you. Most importantly, when you remember God, how you actually act and treat God. For people, it essentially means that those who have a relationship with God will remember they have a relationship with God to the extent that they will act like they have a relationship with God, again, to the extent after that, that everyone around them will know that they have a relationship with God. So it affects everything that we do. Uh, this whole idea of remembering can be grouped into two main categories in the Old Testament. Number one is the mental acts themselves. This is like remembering, meditating on, paying attention to, thinking about Scripture, hope, life, love, Jesus, all that. And secondly is those mental acts that then turn into behavior appropriate to remembering. Like when we remember the covenant that God has made with us, we live differently. The Old Testament call for people to remember is more than an invitation just to think about the past. It's a call to identify with the past in a positive way so that the present life can be shaped by it to make it better. Here's an example. My dog, if you ever go out these back doors, she's usually running around back there somewhere. After the last service, she runs around through here, slobbers on you, drops a ball, all that. If you have food, again, don't feed her, right? All right, you got that. So, so she runs around, but then when she's in the back, half the time she is back there, she will find something to eat, something somewhere. And she eats it, her stomach gets upset, she poops every two hours, she is miserable. I'm miserable, and she is miserable. But she does it all the time. She doesn't remember that, oh, I shouldn't eat that because it smells really bad. She eats it, probably because it does smell really bad. Oh, that's great. She eats it, and then the same thing happens over and over. And maybe you have a friend who always goes out, and maybe they drink way too much, and they spend the next day trying to crawl inside the toilet. They don't know where their pants went. It's this whole idea, the same thing. They never remember what they did, and they continue to do it again and again and again. God calls his people to remember so our life actually changes. And remembering him, we're supposed to remember his commands and who he is so our lives live differently, especially in regard to God and our lives. In Numbers 15, 39, and 40, God is referencing these prayer shawls that, that the Hebrews used to have. On the bottom of these prayer shawls, they would have these tassels. They were called talits. And there's a reason for these talits on there. This is what God says. And it shall be a, tass- be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them. So you'd see this thing. It's like an early rendition of the WWJD bracelet, but not as lame, uh, and it would, you would be able to see that be a tactile reminder of what God has called you to, that we would live the way God has called us to. And God says, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. And I love that God is so brutal and honest in the scripture. We try and clean him all the time. God's like, how you whore after? We censor God. So you shall remember and do all my commands and be holy to your God. Remembering implies a new perspective so shaped by God's words that obedience results in our lives. 
One of the ways for the, in the Old Testament that the Israelites were to remember this, it was supposed to be they remember their state of slavery in Egypt in Deuteronomy 5, 15, 16, 24. And then you remember all that God did to bring them out of that slavery in Deuteronomy 7, 8, and 24. The Old Testament stresses that our memory should focus on who God is and what God has done so we don't freak out when calamity strikes like a flood that you know encompasses the entire world or maybe a flood that just encompasses your kitchen. We don't freak out about those things. And when the Old Testament again says that God remembered his covenant or God remembered Noah, it means he acted in covenant faithfulness because our God always remembers. See, Genesis, ultimately what you'll see by the end of this message is it points to who Jesus is. But it's also the only book that is honest about mankind. It shows that the greatness of man's strength can never save him when he faces God. All men die. I know a few people who read the obituaries every week. Anybody else read the obituaries? Right, okay, the five of you, you're weird. Uh, it's kind, of, it's kind of like the older you get, the more you care. It's like, oh, I beat them. You know, you check them off your list. Yeah. But, but more people are going to die tomorrow. Death is the result of sin. Everybody die. We're all going to die. When God brought about the flood, all he simply did was say, today is everybody's day. He pushes everybody's time of death to the exact same time, and finally people notice. Again, Hebrews 9.27 reminds us we all die. Every, I'm going to die, you're going to die. For some reason, people think we're not going to die. And every once in a while, God pulls back his hand of protection and something happens, like a 9-11, a tsunami, a Katrina, and a few thousand people die at once. Everybody freaks out because reality has actually shown up. It gets people's attention. Now, we've talked about this a few weeks ago when, when James was up here talking that, that God's trying to get people's attention. Well, couldn't God do it some other way throughout Genesis? Well, God did. God could have sent a man as an example to teach the right way. Well, he does. God sends Enoch. Well, maybe God could have given them more time. They could have built more schools, had more education, had bigger government. Like That's ever solved anything in the world. 1,600 years, and they devolved. You know, well, maybe God could have warned them. He did. It starts in the garden. You sin, you die. You sin, you die. And it just goes on and on all the way through Noah. Well, well God could have saved him. He built a boat the size of an ocean liner and nobody listened. You got to look and say, God has done above and beyond what you and I would ever have done. When somebody offends us or hurts us or doesn't agree with us, we just write them off and, and they're done. God continues to pursue. And what you see is that there's hope in the text because it is God who remembers. God. He is a good God who is faithful. He does not forget us. Romans 8.38 says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is our God. He's a God who does not forget us. Chapter 8, verse 1, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that are with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. Now the word here for wind, it's the word ruah. Everybody say ruah. Ruah. Nice. Ruah. No, but Ruah. Okay. It, it, literally, it means spirit. You can actually translate this verse as God made his spirit blow over the earth. See, the, the image is that of breathing, that the movement indicates that life is now going to return to the planet. In Genesis 8, life begins again. And what Genesis 8 does is it does what the rest of the whole Noah narrative has done. It reflects back to creation. 
When God makes a divine decision to wipe out the human race, he employs two verbs that they're flipped on its head from creation. In chapter 6, verse 7, God says, I'm going to blot out man whom I have created. And then in Genesis 1.26, it's I have created I'm going to create man. So it flips those things on its head. The flood is brought about by this reuniting of the waters above and below the earth in Genesis 7:11. It's the same wording that God uses in Genesis 1, 6, and 7 when God separates the waters above and below. In Genesis 6.20 and 7.14, it has the classification of animal life. It corresponds to Genesis chapter 1 when God classifies animal life. You have the provisioning of food in Genesis 6.21. It also looks back to Genesis 1.29 and 30, coming together, showing these things going hand in hand. The first man to be born after the death of Adam, after all of his years, according to the genealogy in uh, Genesis 5, again, which is theological, so you've got to remember that, is that Noah is the first man that is born after Adam's death. It shows that Adam, or that Noah is actually the second father of humanity. Both Adam and Noah have three sons that get listed. I'm sure they had a lot more, but three sons that are listed, one of whom in both their families turns out to be a degenerate knucklehead, which you'll see Noah's son in a couple weeks here. Noah lives in harmony with animals just like Adam. And when you get to chapter 8, verse 1, is it pulls it all together. And the role of this spirit in sweeping back the flood waters. It recalls Genesis 1-2 where the Spirit of God hovers over the waters on the earth. Many people will try and say that the flood narrative in Genesis is borrowed from other religions and other stories like the Gilgamesh narrative. If you ever take cultural anthropology or philosophy, many times they will tell you this. But in reality, the flood story of Genesis stands out as completely authentic. It's an original expression of the religious genius in Israel. Because in Genesis 8, what happens is you see the flood stops at God's command. It starts and it stops. God is sovereign. He is in control. And he is not at the mercy and the whims of nature. God is in control of nature. This is in total contrast to all other flood narratives out there where all the gods become subservient to nature. In the Gilgamesh narratives, the gods become scared to run from the deluge that they started. It's like they get it going because they're angry. We'll teach them and they get it going. And then they're afraid of the fury that they unleashed. In the Gilgamesh Gilgamesh narrative, it actually says they were frightened by the deluge, that they cowered like dogs, crouched against the outer wall. Ishtar cried out like a woman in travail. It's totally different than the God of the Scriptures. The God of the Scriptures is like, here you start, here you stop, no more. I'm God, I'll tell you what you do. That is what you see. Conceptually, spiritually, morally, Genesis stands in striking contrast to everything else that is out there. There's an uncompromisingly moral tenor that shows that it is humanly wrought evil that brings about the destruction to this creation. Our sin, because we were to steward this creation in a certain way. But it shows that it is God's remembrance of his people that saves us all, that allows us to be here today. Chapter 8, verse 1. I know I said that three times, but it's okay. We'll actually move on now. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain, uh, the rain from the heavens was restrained. Again, restrained, showing that God is the one who restrained that. And this for the first time for Noah and these people in this ark, it's probably quiet for the very first time. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventh 17th day of the month, which is my birthday, July 17th. Woo, gummy. Uh, the ark came to rest. Uh, the word rest is a play on Noah's name that means rest on the mountains of Ararat. This could be Iran, Turkey, Russia. We don't really know exactly where this is. Some people think they have found it. We don't really know. 
One thing we do know is that the actual Armenian people have a mountain called Ararat, and they worship that mountain as sacred, which I think is kind of sad because the same sins that men were destroyed for, they do in the same place where the ark might have come to rest. Verse 5, And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, so 40 days of rain, 150 of floating, 40 days of waiting, then corresponds to that 40 days of rain. Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went uh, to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. People say, well, why would you send out a raven first? Very simple. Uh, the most common reason is that a raven's going to eat anything. Anything. So it's going to eat vegetation in the water. It's going to eat floating carcasses. Noah uses it so he can observe what is this raven actually eating. Verse 8. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters have subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. So Noah brings it back inside. He finds nothing on her feet. He would check her feet to make sure there, were, there was clay maybe on her feet or not to see if it had actually touched down, and it doesn't. So, this again, they're not just simple country bumpkins who decided to build a boat. This isn't Duck Dynasty builds a boat. All right? this, is, this is some people who actually knew what they were doing. They're not dumb. Verse 10, he waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening. Now, doves are not that hardy, so this means now the dove had a place to like land and rest before it came back. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked, and this is a Hebrew verb meaning that was taken off of a tree of some sort. It was not floating. A freshly plucked olive leaf. So life is returning to the earth again somewhere because God remembered Noah. I've heard people say that an olive branch is kind of a dumb symbol for peace, like we like to use it today, extend an olive branch. You know, because in order in Genesis for God to stop the sin on the earth, he just wiped out everybody. And I think it's ultimately true that, that in the end, when there's true peace on the earth, it's because Jesus is going to come and Jesus will bring that. But today, we have become a people who try and parade peace without repentance. Actually, there's a, there's a filmmaker, who, uh, his name is Matthew Modine, and he, and he wrote this. Someone sent it to me this week. I think that you could define Jesus as a utopian communist. I'm like, really? How? Uh, where people would work together to solve our problems. The problem in Genesis is that you see that the issues we had was because we were trying to do everything ourselves. Genesis points to the fact that when we just rely on ourselves, everything falls to pieces. We are terrible. We want to preach the brotherhood of man without embracing Jesus. And whenever we do this, we find ourselves in the same fate as those in the days of Noah. Because we can't change ourselves. Jesus is the one who changes us. Only God changes people. And that's a miracle of grace. I think if you look at it truly, I think the dove would represent justice. And I think this olive branch would represent God's remembrance of us. You see, the, the olive tree is an evergreen. It's one of the hardiest in the Middle, Middle East. It thrives upwards of a thousand years. Later, this olive branch becomes a symbol for God's blessing and regeneration, God's abundance and God's strength. But I think more importantly, it is God's remembrance of his people. God remembered Noah. Eventually, like even today, the olive branch is incorporated into Israel's sign because they believe it's uh, peace and reconciliation. And that, I think it's much more remembrance. So the text goes on. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. It's like, boom, I'm out of here. It stinks in that ark. Verse 13, in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, so it's New Year's Day, the waters were dried off of the earth. That's one year since they went in that ark. Uh, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. So you might think, oh, the face of the ground is dry. Let's go run it out. No, it's still probably pretty saturated. You'd run out and boom. 
quicksand, and then it's all over because we were like ducked down to see the built boat. Verse 14. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. So it takes 56 more days, again, to reflect back to Genesis 1 and the third day of creation. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And I love what happens here. You see that God speaks and Noah listens. This has been the pattern for his life after God extends him grace. God says, build a boat. He builds a boat. God says, go into the boat. He goes into the boat. God says, come out of the boat. And they come out of the boat. He waits for God to tell him what to do. I mean, you and I, we would have jumped out of that boat the first time we saw any dry land. And we would have, God, before God says boo, we just jump out of that thing. You know, you're with your relatives for an entire year. You all stink. It's like, I gotta get out of this boat or somebody's gonna die soon. Verse 18. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. And what does Noah see? Probably not a whole lot of anything. Everything's quiet. Everything's gone. No livestock, no birds, nothing. Just the ones coming out behind him. And what do you say? You know, what do you do in the midst of this? You know, you just brought your family through this thing. God showed you grace. What do you do? What's your priority? Do you get depressed? Do you build a home? Do you take a bath? Do you take a walk? Do you build a shelter? Do you make some food? Do you start a fire? What do you do? You know what Noah does? Noah worships God. It's the first thing he does. Chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, you're probably thinking, what's he doing? There's not that many left. <laughs> what are you going to do with those animals? Well, they probably had lots of babies in the ark, all right? So gestation periods for animals are a lot faster than ours, so they probably had babies in there. What Noah does is he names and he confesses his sin to God. The first day, first priority, worship of God, as should ours be. He confesses his sin, sheds the blood of an animal to atone. Noah has great thanks to God and gratitude for his safe deliverance. And God doesn't command Noah. Noah does this on his own initiative. God doesn't say, go and do this. Noah just simply does it. Now, in my effort to make you guys a little smarter theologically, I'm going to give you two terms so you don't think you have to go home and start sacrificing your cat or your dog or your goldfish, wherever you got, all right, to atone for your sins. I'm going to give you two words. Ready? Propitiation and expiation. These two words. Propitiation literally means to make favorable. That it, propitiation actually includes expiation in it. Propitiation means that we have been made favorable in God's sight. Expiation means to make pious. It, it implies the removal of sin or the cleansing from sin. Now, we've got to understand, again, that propitiation includes expiation, but expiation doesn't necessarily mean propitiation. You're like, there's a lot of words, I'm not understand what you're saying. Okay, here you go. Uh, expiation, the object of expiation is sin, not God. You propitiate a person, you expiate a problem. As in the case of the flood, the flood was expiation of the sin problem on the earth. God took care of the sin problem. No one knows this, knows it's God's grace and remembering him that saved him and his whole family. And then God gives him by grace propitiation. He makes him righteous. Okay, so keep that in your mind. We're going to move from this and we'll come back to it in just a minute. Verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, this doesn't mean it's food for God, there's no sacrifice, it's about the worship. The Lord said in his heart, and when God says in his heart here, it directly reflects back to Genesis 6 where God says in his heart, I'm going to take care of the sin problem. God says in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. This tells you it is about Noah's worship, and this pleases God's heart. In the book of Revelation, chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, you have an angel. 
has a golden censer. And he stands before God's altar. And, and rising with this is the prayers of the saints. And this is a pleasing aroma to God, the worship of his people. What you see here is that God is actually pleased in Genesis because man is truly beginning to live how he was intended to live again. He's not worshiping himself or other people. He's no longer destroying himself. Now today, does God not destroy the entire land again because we're so good? No. It's simply because he is good and God remembers his covenant. We get up every day, look in the mirror, worship ourselves, but God shows us favor and grace. In verse 22, God rounds out this. He says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. It doesn't say that there's not going to be floods or famines, but says that God will not wipe man from the earth. No matter what the environmental ozone and putting water world fanatic is going to run out of food, hippies say, God says there will be life until I say there's not life. Let me pull this together for you and how this all points to Jesus. When Jesus comes, he reiterates all this stuff. He points people to look back at Noah and the intent of what this meant. In Luke 17, 26 and 27, Jesus says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man, when they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus points to the idea of the expiation of the sin problem on the earth at the time. Like Noah's story, we're all supposed to get a sense of urgency in this because no one knows the day when we die. We're supposed to live lives that honor God while we live. And what is amazing about Jesus when he comes is his death and resurrection is expiation and propitiation going hand in hand together. If you like to read like an NIV, great translation. I've got no problem with it at all. Uh, but when you get to the book of Romans and the NIV, many times you'll read the word atonement in a lot of places. That word should actually be propitiation. Atonement is covering our sins. Propitiation is God taking care of our sins and making us favorable in his sight again. Atonement's a great word, but it's not propitiation. Again, propitiation includes all these things where God is made favorable to people again. You expiate a problem. You propitiate a person. Christ's death and resurrection was an expiation and a propitiation. By expiating, removing the sin problem by his death, God has made propitious. He's made favorable to us. We sum these two words up in a five-letter word called grace. And when we just say the word grace, we always forget what it totally entails. The taking care of the sin problem and the making us favorable in God's sight. This is what grace entails, all of these things. That God remembered us like he remembers Noah. We can be like Noah in God's eyes through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through faith in him. Propitiation is a work Jesus does on the cross to appease and satisfy God's wrath so sinners can be pardoned, live a new life, be redeemed and restored again. What you have in the scriptures, you have creation and you have Noah all the way through the end of eternity. But in the middle of this, Jesus atones for our sins and brings propitiation for his people. He offers us life. He clothes our shamefulness like God clothed Adam and Eve. The whole big idea in all of this of Noah and and the flood is pointing directly to Jesus and what Jesus is going to do, that God remembers us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This means you don't need to go home today and sacrifice your cat or your dog or your goldfish or whatever. It is Christ's blood that is sacrificed for us that brings the expiation and his ultimate resurrection that brings his propitiation. Ephesians 5.2 says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Just as Noah's offering was pleasing to who God is, Romans 12 tells you and I that we are to live lives as living sacrifices, that our lives are pleased in aromas to God. I mean, in one sense, it is period because Christ has covered us with his blood. 
and his resurrection. But on the other side of that, we should be living lives that bring great fragrance to God. God remembers us. You and I should live lives like we remember him as well because our God has been made favorable to us. This is why God calls us people to remember him and his commands because in remembering, it implies this new perspective so shaped by God's words that obedience results in our lives. So my three questions for you today is how do you live? How do you worship? And most importantly, what does your fragrance smell like to God? What does it smell like? I mean, if you, if you had to put it in words, what would you say? I mean, this is one of the reasons why we believe worship is, is when we get together like this and we talk about God's word. That's worship. We believe worship is communion, where you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice, remind us of his blood that was shed for you and I. This whole idea of expiation or propitiation that God has done all of these things himself in order to bestow and offer you and I grace. Uh, we worship God also through song and music. The band's going to come up. They will do a couple songs. And as they do, we invite you guys to sing along, to take communion. Uh, we invite you guys, there will be some deacons and elders in the back. We worship God through prayer. And if you need prayer for anything, maybe it's like, I don't understand these big words that are being thrown at me this morning. <laughs> Go and talk to them. They may not know either. They, Hold on, we'll get Aaron. We'll talk to you about it in a minute. You know? But you know, this whole idea, if you need prayer for anything, anything, Go and pray with them. Uh, we're at Worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the side and on the back. And we give because God gives so much to us. So giving is simply part of our worship. That's why we talk about it every week and give you the opportunity every week. Not passing a plate, but in response to what he has done. Uh, there's some food and stuff in the back. We invite you guys to get together to meet some other people. That's worship as well. Fellow, fellowshipping with God's people is worshiping God. So hang out with other people. Go out and do something. Get in the gospel community. Also, uh, worship is also service, where you serve those around you by how you live your life and everything you do. This whole idea that our God came as a servant in Jesus, so we serve as well. This is all worship, that our God has come and saved and brought us grace so that we can be a people who live and worship as we were always intended to. Would you guys pray with me? Father, this morning, I ask that we would begin to understand more and more how we are to remember. That in remembering, it would so change who we are and how we live that everybody around us would know that we love and worship you. Not in a crazy Christian kind of way. we got to wear the, the T-shirts or the bandanas or put the stickers all over our cars, but in a way that our lives actually show it. The greatness and the goodness of who you are lived practically in the lives of your children. Father, we thank you for not only just taking care of the sin problem, but also making us favorable in your sight. For becoming favorable to us again, for remembering us. And Father, for all the times that we have been those who don't remember you like you remember us, we are sorry. But we know ultimately all those things were paid for by your Son. And so help us to live more in a place of hope for what tomorrow brings because of your great favor that has been shown to us. Father, you have a God, you're a God who's given us much, more than we can ever comprehend or even explain. Have us begin to live a life of remembrance of you. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.